Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, I'm in conversation with an instrument scientist who specializes in designing X-ray telescopes that are operated in space. In the past decades, X-ray astronomy has grown by leaps and bounds with the launch of more powerful space observatories. To talk about this burgeoning field, I'm joined down the line by Roland Den Hartog, who is an instrument scientist at ESRON, which is the Netherlands Institute for Space Research in Leiden. Hi, Roland. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Glad to be here. So, Roland... First things first, why do astronomers use space-based X-ray telescopes rather than instruments that are based on the ground? Um, the primary reason is the uh, opacity of the atmosphere for X-rays. Uh, for life in general, that's a good thing, but it makes uh, the life of uh, X-ray astronomers uh, difficult. But on the other hand, it keeps uh, instrument scientists like myself off the streets, so uh, that's it. And so does that mean that uh, before we had satellites, astronomers really didn't know much about X-rays that were coming from the cosmos? Um, yes, it, it basically the field started uh, when um, sounding rockets came uh, along uh, after World War II. So uh, the first X-rays that were uh, being detected uh, were uh, detected uh, on a, with a very basic X-ray instrument uh, on a sounding rocket in uh, 1949. And those were X-rays from the sun. And then during the 60s, uh, people also began to detect uh, more astronomical uh, or more distant uh, uh, sources. And uh, only in the 1970s, with the advent of uh, uh, satellites, X-ray satellites, uh, the whole field really started. And, and Roland, what, what sort of detectors are used in X-ray telescopes? Are they similar to the detectors that uh, are used in, in medical or particle physics applications? Is it, is it the same de detector that your dentist uses when you have an X-ray done of your teeth? Or is it a, a very different type of instrument? The, um, the field of, uh, of X-ray detection is actually uh, extremely wide. Uh, there is a, a huge variety of different detectors, and um, uh, this offers the opportunity, of course, uh, to, um, to, um, to adapt your detector and your detector design to the exact purpose that, you're, uh, that you want. Uh, if you want to observe, uh, make a dental photograph, you need something small enough to fit in the mouth, and when you have, uh, want to make a chest X-ray, you have a much larger field, so you use different, already different technologies. Um, so uh, it, it, it's difficult to, to say that there is much similarity. Uh, right now, uh, most of the detectors are based on, uh, on semiconductor materials. Uh, but that's in itself quite a broad statement, and uh, the similarities end there. Uh, to, uh, to give go back to the to the space science uh, um, yeah, the most widely used um, 
X-ray detectors right now on XMM Newton and Chandra, uh, yeah, those were launched in 1999. So they fly basically detectors which were developed during the 80s and 90s. So CCD-based detectors, whereas uh, yeah, modern uh, X-ray detectors tend to be based on, uh, on, on CMOS technology. Uh, and then again, it's it's depending on what you want with the detector, whether it's an, 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 uh, you put a scintillator or a big absorber in front of it, or you try to detect directly uh, X-rays in the silicon. If you do that, you get uh, a much better uh, feel for the or measurement of the actual energy of the photons, but silicon doesn't stop X-rays so well. So if you go to higher energies, you need other materials. So there's all these... Uh, trade-offs that are made uh, for every uh, instrument that you design, basically. And, and Roland, uh, something that I've wondered is, um, I mean, I, I don't think that you can you can focus X-rays in the same way that you would focus light in a in a telescope. So how how do you know where those X-rays are coming from? How, how, how do you get directionality in your detectors? Well, actually, we do have fo focusing optics. Uh, the only thing is that you don't use a lens, which is a plate uh, with uh, varying thickness, but you use uh, basically uh, mirrors which are pointed uh, almost in the direction of your source, so sideways. And basically what happens is that a uh, uh, photon that comes in under the grazing angle will get reflected. And with those... and, and Typically, an, uh, an um, X-ray detector on XMM Newton uh, or Chandra looks like, uh, or the telescope looks like an, uh, an, a set of nested shells, which are covered by uh, nickel as a reflecting uh, material, as, or and, and gold. So uh, you have uh, basically an, 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 a sideways set of mirrors, and for um, much modern, more modern um, future uh, uh, telescopes like on Athena, we uh, will use uh, silicon, silicon wafers in which uh, uh, slits have been etched and we stack those on top of each other. So you get basically a, a system of pores, it's called silicon pore optics, and by uh, uh, cleverly bending them a little bit, you can. Uh, focus the X-rays uh, through uh, two or, uh, yeah, basically two reflections. And, and Roland, I would imagine that it's, it's, it's a real challenge. And I, I would imagine a huge part of your job is, is designing a detector that can go into space. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one that not only does the job, but that you can stick on a rocket and, and get up into space and operate reliably in space. What, what are some of the challenges there in terms of design and, and implementation? Yeah. The um, instrument I'm uh, working on right now with a large group of people, it's always an, uh, a team effort, is uh, the X-ray Integral Field Unit or XIFU. That's a future instrument for the Athena mission that I uh, just mentioned. And uh, yeah, that packs uh, a, a, a lot of challenges. Uh, it's based on uh, uh, a uh, new technology for X-ray detection, uh, superconducting microcalorimeters. Uh, so these have to be cooled down 
to 50 millikelvin and uh, just above absolute zero uh, to function. Um, so, um, and basically uh, our institute is uh, concerned with uh, what you could call the camera body. And uh, the, the, we get parts from all over the place. The, the detector comes from NASA, uh, amplifiers, uh, cold amplifiers uh, come from, uh, from Finland and from the US. And so we have lots of contributing parties, but the camera body is, is our responsibility. And that uh, means that we have to build something, first of all, that can be launched and survive launch. And after launch is still functioning. So we have to really think about how to mount things and how to uh, keep things together. Then you have to uh, make sure that the inner part where the detector is mounted uh, can reach uh, 50 millikelvin. So you have to thermally isolate it. So we use Kevlar strings for that. But those Kevlar strings also have to survive uh, a launch with forces up to uh, something like uh, 13 G or so. Uh, during the first minutes of the launch. So that's uh, basically building a camera that you can kick around and uh, play football with, and then it still has to uh, uh, to function. Um, then there is uh, cosmic radiation uh, where we have to uh, where we have to deal with. So all the parts that we put on that uh, camera, uh, have to survive a certain radiation dose. So that's part of the thing. And then these detectors themselves are also, uh, well, they are super sensitive. Uh, they're specifically cooled down to these very low temperatures because they can uh, get a much better energy resolution. They see far more colors than an, uh, a silicon-based semiconductor detector. But uh, they're also sensitive to magnetic fields, to uh, thermal uh, variations, to mechanical variation, fluctuations, vibrations, um, while at the same time you have to uh, cool down to uh, 50 millikelvin, so you use a pretty powerful cooler for that. A pulse tube gets you to 4K and then a sequence of other um, coolers to get down to the 50 millikelvin level, and either they vibrate, they have a compression and an expansion stroke, or they use magnetic fields, strong magnetic fields. So <laughs> both things that the detector doesn't like. So it's an, uh, a continuous um, uh, discussion in the consortium that is building this instrument uh, about yeah, what's technical, technically called interfaces, but basically what is your piece of equipment doing to my detector and what is my detector needing and, and so on. So it's a, it's a, it's an it's an interesting challenge to get a uh, sensitive instrument into space and have it function. So that's really interesting, Roland. I didn't I didn't realize that you're using uh, superconducting detectors. Is is there a, a crossover between what you're doing and work that's being done, for example, in in quantum computing and quantum sensing? using uh, superconductors? Um, well, the only link that there is is that we make use of the uh, blossoming field of quantum computing uh, by <laughs> buying um, relatively cheap uh, cryostats, coolers, uh, for our work uh, because they are produced by the hundreds uh, 
these these days um, uh, and 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 sold all over the the planet. Uh, there is an, uh, a huge advance in the in the technology. It becomes easier and easier to cool things down to 50 millikelvin. Um, for the rest. Um, we looked, of course, into to see if we, for instance, could use uh, things like uh, the the cabling uh, at at uh, these low uh, temperatures. And uh, you like to have cables which are superconducting because they do uh, uh, conduct uh, the electricity, but uh, they isolate thermally much better because keeping things at 50 millikelvin is a challenge. And if you want to read out as many pixels as possible, you have to use all kinds of techniques for that. Um, but in the end, it turns out that in our specific uh, uh, problem or, or uh, project, we, we, we basically have to build everything customized. It's, 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 it's difficult to, to, to use something that somebody else built for another purpose and then make it reliable enough to uh, to fly yeah to basically build it into a space instrument and fly it into space and and these uh, x-ray superconducting x-ray detectors are they are they being used on on earth <laughs> um, already yeah. in i don't know maybe a part particle physics um, applications or something like that they are used uh, on synchrotrons uh, it's uh, uh, so but, but that's very specialized uh, equipment um in general uh they are uh, yeah they, they they are used in 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 for material science and and, and at synchrotrons but at an at an low level it's it's not that you just buy camera systems like that and that's because they are uh, a bit difficult to operate. Eh? You have to have um, a, 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 a cooler that can bring the whole system to uh, 50 millikelvin or thereabouts, and then you have to have a connection to your, uh, yeah, basically to the source where your X-rays come from. Uh, so it's it's right now it's it's something that I expect to become more widely used now that. Cheap coolers are basically also uh, becoming available. And and why are you going to to all the trouble of <laughs> you know putting a, a superconducting detector into space with all the challenges associated with the cooling? Is it because that they're in incredibly sensitive, or do they have a very good energy resolution, or is it both? What what, what are the benefits of of using these detectors? It's the energy resolution. It's mm. the energy resolution uh, with respect to the the next best option, and that's the silicon-based uh, detectors. Silicon uh, detectors have energy resolutions uh, just above uh, uh, 100 uh, electron volt in the energy range where we are interested in, and that's something I, I should have said. Uh, we are interested in the soft X-rays between, say, uh, 100, 200 EV up to 10 or bit uh, beyond uh, kilo electron volt. And that's the range where basically all the fingerprints of the elements are. Uh, uh, all the electron systems of the, of the astronomically relevant uh, uh, elements, uh, that's up, basically up to iron, 
have uh, emission lines, uh, so uh, electron transitions in that energy range, and uh, often in in in, in triplets uh, or uh, even larger systems. And a typical thing that you can do with a uh, superconducting uh, detector, which uh, which has a resolution below say uh, four eV. Uh, is that you can separate uh, the individual lines in an, uh, an X-ray triplet and look at the relative strength of those. And that's an, uh, a very good um, gauge for the conditions in the plasma that emits those X-rays. So from the, the different strength of the, of the lines in the triplet, you can tell the density of the electrons in the plasma you can tell the temperature of the plasma, you can tell the pressure. So there, there is an enormous amount of information that is um, not basically available with silicon detectors that suddenly becomes, is opened up with these uh, superconducting uh, detectors. And that's the, the, the driving reason. So that, that, that moves us on nicely to, um, to my next question, Roland, and that is what sort of objects are, do you observe with um, X-ray telescopes? What, what are you focusing oh. <laughs> on? What are you observing? Um, basically, um, uh, X-rays are emitted by hot plasmas. So you're, you're looking at, thing, uh, at plasmas which have a, typically in a temperature above a million uh, Kelvin. So um, you, you, you use X-rays to study the, the, the hot and energetic universe, use uh, the language of ESA. Um, so um, of the objects we are interested in is clusters of galaxies, the, the largest gravitationally bound objects in the universe. Uh, they have uh, lots and lots of X-ray gas, and the X-ray gas can tell quite a lot about the formation history of those clusters. Uh, and uh, so that's, an, uh, th that's one uh, important uh, uh, area of research, one that also drives a lot of the requirements for the XIFU instrument. And then there are uh, lots of uh, compact objects uh, which are uh, of interest. Uh, black holes uh, are emitters of... Um, X-ray uh, uh, radiation, it's uh, not the black holes themselves, of course, but the accretion disk around it, and, uh, or the corona, where presumably the, the jets are uh, ejected from, uh, emit uh, X-rays. Uh, you have neutron stars, which are uh, very interesting objects uh, when, they're, um, uh, when the magnetic fields are strong enough they will uh, pull in uh, electrons on other ch uh, charged particles and you get two spots on the uh, surface of the neutron star. And then there are combinations where these uh, compact objects uh, are in orbit with, an, uh, with a star, either a normal star or a, a giant star. And, and yeah, lots of... Um, uh, very energetic processes take place. And since these objects are so very compact, uh, you can't resolve them in an image. So you basically have to study them fully by looking at the spectrum that comes out of it, uh, looking at the ratios, at, at, at the background. Uh, so that the whole spectrum is there your source of information. So that's, um, 
why more and more energy resolution will bring you yeah, more and more information also about these objects. And, and does X-ray astronomy, does that give you information uh, about the, the origins of, of elements in the universe? You know, for example, where heavy elements like, I don't know, gold and, and platinum, uh, etc., are formed? What, what sort of processes form those elements? That's, that's one of the basic science cases for Athena. Uh, so um, uh, the the combination of a big uh, telescope, so you, you're looking basically at the enrichment of uh, the environment, for instance, in clusters, distant clusters, and you compare that to clusters nearby, and you're looking for elements, which elements are there, how abundant, how strong are these lines, so how abundant are these elements at a certain uh, moment in time, and, and then you look closer by, uh, so less far in the in the past and you compare that and you get indeed a sort of uh, enrichment history of the universe uh, with that and so and so that's one goal of athena i'm guessing that there's there's probably more can you can you talk a bit about what we can expect um in the future of x-ray astronomy there are 12 science cases uh at least that was a couple of years ago and uh, um, Athena is launched right is, is now scheduled for launch in uh, 2036. So um, it's it. I can tell about the science cases, but I'm probably <laughs> it's probably all changed in 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 in, in 10, 15 years time. I think the mission to watch now is CRISM, uh, which is an uh, a, uh, a Japanese mission with an, uh, a NASA instrument on board, uh, Resolve, which uh, is also used uh, supercooled detectors. Uh, they are not superconducting per se, but they use the same principle. They have a, a very cold piece of metal that serves as a uh, temperature-sensitive um, resistor and an absorber, and with that instrument which will have only 36 pixels uh, so it's 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 it, it is a, a small version of athena and a sort of test version of athena but it, it will do already or um it has in its previous incarnation as he told me done already uh, or given us already in a, a very exciting uh, view of uh, per, of the perseus cluster so um yeah a, a lot of the science uh, that I just described, basically the diagnostics of the plasma and, and uh, the, the basically looking at the whole velocity uh, structure of a cluster by, because you can see uh, the shifted lines, you can see uh, plasma move and so all that work which is beginning to uh, being developed, uh, the techniques are being developed now by the astronomical community that will start to take place with, uh, with with the launch of CRISM, which should be somewhere in the coming year. It's it's um, scheduled for launch in the fiscal year uh, 2023 for in Japan. That runs actually to April 2024. So somewhere in the coming year, the mission has to launch. And hopefully, that's what we're all praying for, is that this time it will survive and will 
bring its full uh, uh, capabilities to the uh, uh, X-ray astronomy. And and one final question, Roland. Um, I know that you and many of your colleagues um, have an interest in environmental issues. What can um, instrument scientists do to help um, in the climate crisis? Okay. The institute I work for, ESRON, has uh, two branches. So uh, one is looking uh, towards the stars and the other branch has the telescopes and the instruments uh, rotated 180 degrees. So we're doing uh, also Earth observation. And um, one of the instruments built at ESRON, uh, which is the Tropomi instrument, is basically used right now to make a complete um, budget of all the methane um, exhaust on the planet. Uh, they, for instance, discovered that big um, garbage uh, heaps uh, uh, everywhere on the planet are emitting quite uh, large amounts of methane. And that's something that we didn't know before. And now you can do something about it. So as an institute, we are uh, yeah, generally committed to, to, to environmental issues. As um, an, an, an astronomical community or a community that builds instruments uh, for astronomy, uh, yeah, we face, an, uh, of course, an, uh, a dilemma. Uh, it's, uh, these are large international collaborations, so you need to meet people in order to collaborate. And on the other hand, uh, it makes people fly around all over the planet all the time, and that clearly has an... Uh, a noticeable footprint. Um, for instance, in the in in the the, the consortium I'm working on uh, to build uh, the XIView instrument, we uh, have as one focal point uh, to to uh, make uh, an, uh, an as clear as possible picture of the footprint of this uh, project. So we, we we count how many miles we fly, what materials we're using, uh, basically in the a cradle-to-grave uh, type of approach to, to, to this instrument, so also to learn what it's indeed really, what these type of projects really mean environmentally. So that's, um, and um, yeah, practically we also driven by, uh, the, by Corona, uh, we are much more uh, meeting online. So it's, it's more accepted to uh, and also more uh, accommodated uh, to show up uh, as a uh, picture on the computer screen rather than in person. Um, that said, uh, there is also a younger generation that has to uh, build out his, build up their network. And um, so we have to occasionally meet in person anyway to also to to get new acquaintances and to bring new people into the field. So there is, it's, it's, but it's something that we are continuously trading off. Uh, do I really have to go there in person? Can I go online? And we, and since, since that awareness um, was um, brought in and also accelerated by Corona, but it started before that, indeed the amount of traveling has been cut down quite a bit. 
Well, that's really interesting, Roland. Thanks so much um, for talking about uh, X-ray astronomy and also for talking about um, your institute's environmental activities. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Roland Den Hartog for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when we'll be chatting about quantum woo, that heady blend of physics and mysticism that many scientists dread. But in the meantime, please check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester talks to two physicists about the Bell Burnell Graduate Scholarship Fund, which was founded in 2018 by the astrophysicist Jocelyn Bell Burnell, using money that she had won in two major prizes. Gluster's guests are Helen Gleason, a liquid crystals and soft matter researcher at the University of Leeds, who is chair of the selection panel for the fund, and a fund awardee, Joanna Sikowska, who is doing a PhD at the University of Surrey. This involves studying the formation and evolution of the Magellanic Clouds galaxies while searching for neighboring ultra-faint dwarf galaxies believed to contain large quantities of dark matter. This episode is called Cosmic Generosity, a Selfless Investment in the Future of Physics, and you can find it and all the other episodes of the Stories podcast on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.